0: this week on the back table podcast in terms of you know must have equipment um i think adult diapers are very helpful
1: <laughs> <laughs> welcome everyone this is michael Barraza welcoming you to uh, the back table podcast uh, back table is your source for uh, everything ir from devices to uh, tips and techniques and challenges uh Today, we're going to be doing a podcast on IVC filter retrieval, and uh, I'd like to uh, welcome our two guests. Uh, We've got Rob Ryu from Denver, and we've got A.J. Gunn from Birmingham. I'd like to let you guys uh, just tell us a little bit about yourselves, tell us where you are and how you got there.
2: Yeah, so um, my name's A.J. Gunn. Uh, I'm an individual radiologist and assistant professor at University of Alabama at Birmingham. Um, I did uh, medical in South Dakota, where I'm from, and then uh, residency at the Mass General Hospital in Boston, followed by a fellowship in IR at Johns Hopkins, and then I was working at Washington University in St. Louis before I came here in 2016.
0: I'm Bob Ryu. I'm the Director of Interventional Radiology at the University of Colorado, where I've been since 2014. Prior to that, I was on faculty at Northwestern University for... Uh, what seems like many, many years um, before I came to Colorado, and um, uh, it's a pleasure to be here today. Thanks for inviting me.
1: We're really excited to have both of you on here. Uh, You guys are both very well-known in our community. Um, Myself, I'm about two months out of fellowship at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm working in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, So what I'd like to do is have you both uh, just tell us about um, you know, when and why filter retrieval became an important element of your practice. And tell us about your filter retrieval service and its current state and how it's evolved. Um, uh, maybe go ahead and start um with you, Bob.
0: Oh, sure. Um gosh, my interest in IVC filters goes back probably to when you guys were in high school. Um, I'm sorry to say. Um, no, I you know, um, I guess I got more interested in filters probably in the mid, late two thousands about the last 10 years really is um, when things got very interesting uh, and that was kind of matched up to the advent of retrievable filters. And, you know, you have to remember back in the day, again, when I was trained, there was basically, you know, one filter uh, and it was permanent. Um, and you know, fine, you could have a Venus heck, or you could have a greenfield, you could have a bird's nest. That was kind of or Simonite and all. Um, and when retrievable filters came out of the market, that sort of changed everything. You know, we went through this whole iteration of um tethered filters, uh, which we're kind of coming back to now with the angel catheter I guess we can talk about that a little bit later. But you know, there there's been this really interesting evolution of the devices, and as it became clear, uh you know, in the late 2000s, that there are a ton of retrieval filters that are being put into people and never being retrieved. Um, you know, that's kind of when we started to realize there was a a little bit of a, um, I don't know, bitter harvest that uh, we as interventional radiologists were going to have to come to terms with. And that was all, all those people who um, had these filters in and they were having problems with it, not to mention, you know, kind of what we knew in terms of their ongoing risk of occlusion and DVT and postphlebitic syndrome and you name it, all the device-related complications, but also the you know the devices themselves causing problems. So that's really kind of when it got more interesting um, you know, in the last 10 years or so, and we really started to focus on um retrievals, both how to um how to get better at making sure we follow patients. Uh, trying to prospectively identify the patients who really need a retrieval filter, uh, and then getting really good at taking them out technically.
2: And I come in, um, you know, really on the back end of this. And, you know, for me, it was, uh, you know, joining a new practice out in St. Louis, and there was like 14 practitioners. And you know, as as a new IR, a lot of it was trying to find, you know, where do I fit in? Because there's plenty of people who want to do interventional oncology and there's plenty of people who wanted to do PAD and DVT lysis and dialysis work and all these other things that were going on. And so you kind of have to sit back and say, okay, well where am I going to fit in? How can I help this practice and how can I help us de- uh develop our practice even further? And so it wasn't like I came out of fellowship with this this passion for retrieving filters, but I, you know, when I looked at our practice at Washington University and thought, hmm, you know, uh, here's something I can do. Here's something that we aren't really doing. And also for me, it was like a nexus of, you know, as Bob mentioned, um, following our patients. And that's something that has also come along in the last, you know, five or 10 years in interventional radiology is clinic and following patients and establishing ourselves as a clinical specialty. And so that was also something that I was, that I was interested in and passionate about. And so, um, setting up a filter retrieval program, finding a way that we can, you know, change our notes, change our templates, see our patients back in clinic. That was something, you know, that, that fit as far as the clinical aspects of IR and also something that I could, that I could contribute to the practice. And so that's really where it just kind of started for me in, you know, finding my place and, and, and where I could fit into my new practice.
1: Absolutely. Uh, so how did you start that when, when you really, when you wanted to help build what was there at UAB, uh, what did you do to start increasing the volume?
2: Yeah, so I'd um, be interested to hear Bob's thoughts about this as well because I really kind of saw it as first I needed to convince my partners, right? And um, then I need to convince referring physicians. And then you kind of like look out to direct to patients and those kinds of things. And so the first thing I really did is the same thing. You know, when I got to UAB, I sat and I said, okay, like, what are we doing now? Um, which was not a lot, and I said, okay, you know, sat down with the group and said, here's something I'm really interested in. Um, we're trying to build a new interventional radiology clinic here at UAB, and I think this is one way we can start to, you know, get patients to come into clinic because we can, you know, uh, set them up for follow-up uh, in two to three months after we place their filters. And, and whether or not we take the filter, up, filter out, we we've, we've at least put our nickel down. And say sure. this filter needs to stay in, or this filter needs to come out. And so, you know, first, um, I'm not saying my partners weren't skeptical; they were all they were they were all for it. But um, you know, there needs to be data there. There needs to be showing them, hey, listen, here's the complications of filters, and it's really changing people's mindsets. Because the first thing you hear is, well, you know. Uh, why do they need a second procedure? And I'm sitting here saying, you know, really we need to change the mindset from why do they need a second procedure to why they need to keep that filter in. And once you start to change your mindset to give me a reason that that filter needs to stay in, you'll find that a lot more of the filters will come out.
1: And yeah, that, that's fascinating. It's also a challenge. Uh, you know, that, that's something I think we all run into is, uh, you know, Educating our referring providers about when these filters need to be placed and when they need to be removed. Um, So just out of curiosity for both of you, roughly what percentage of the filters that you're removing were placed by your department?
0: Um, What percentage of filters we were taking out? Well, certainly early on, it was, you know, virtually 100 percent. You know, it was very kind of insular. Um, But, you know, we weren't making a conscious effort to chase these patients down. And that's really, you know, that was kind of the first step of developing the practice. Uh, it was kind of becoming accountable for the filters that we were implanting. Um, you know, and, and that was sort of the, the, the um, seed of uh, the concept of what we we're trying to do. Um, you know, I give a ton of credit to Bob Lewandowski and, and Kush Desai, mm-hmm. uh, my two, uh, ex-partners at Northwestern, um, who were, uh, just as instrumental, if not more so in trying to drive what we were trying to do. And it started with that. Um, you know, the other question you asked with regard to, you know, how we built the service up, it started with being accountable and starting a clinic, which I think was helpful, but okay. we realized that, you know, the whole clinic thing didn't have to happen. It, frankly, was inefficient. And what it became was more of a virtual clinic. In other words, you know, just making sure that we are reaching out to patients, reaching out to referring physicians and being accountable and okay. really making a conscious effort. Um, you know, that's how it starts.
2: And I think, you know, I, I would add on to that. I mean, I think referring, to, you know, for a long time, interventional radiologists have deferred that decision about whether the filter should stay in or stay out to the referring doctor. And that's great in some instances, but in a lot of instances, you know, these are can be nurse practitioners out in the community, physician assistants, primary care doctors, who are worrying about other things. They're not worrying about necessarily their patient's IVC filter. And um, we found that... um when we've seen patients in clinic just sending an email to the, you know, to the referring doctor saying, Hey, we're going to take out the filter because of X, Y, and Z. They're happy with that. And they're they're really pleased that someone like Bob is saying is taking responsibility for that because that's not, it's not in their wheelhouse and it's not in their area of expertise and it is in our area of expertise. And so it's a way we can provide um, um, an extra level of care for our patients and being responsible to that. And uh, you know, you mentioned physician education. I've just had, you know, so many experiences in the last, you know, few months where, you know, referring physicians just, they just don't really understand how filters come out and those other kinds of things. And so just sitting down and saying, I had one referring physician say, well, their DBT was in their right lower extremity. Don't you have to go through their groin to take the filter out? And and you just realize people really don't know what we do. And when you sit down and explain to them how we do it and what the data is behind it, you know, I think they, they, they get more on board that way.
1: Yeah, I mean, it seems for me like a lot of people uh, are still expecting these to be uh, for prophylactic use, and so you know, I run into a lot of discussions where people are like, "Well, you know, had a filter before. I mean, he's had a, a clot before. You know, what's what's going to keep this clot <laughs> from coming back again?" And kind of tones like it's not the filter. Uh, so, you know, as you started to take accountability of these filters, uh, how did you ultimately reach the point where you were getting referrals to remove more of these that you hadn't placed yourself? Uh, was that word of mouth or was that something, you know, that came from you know, direct contact with these other doctors?
2: Uh, we are, um, probably let Bob speak to that a little bit more since his practice is, is a little bit more developed than we are down here at UAB. I mean, we're still at the point to your previous question where most of our filters are taking, our we're taking out our, our, you know, our filters. Um, I can think of five or six patients uh, in the last 12 months that have come from outside. Um, that's usually uh, been... One of I can think of three situations. Really, it's it's come down to one has been there's a referring doctor you know somewhere in the region that tried to take the filter out and said hey why don't you just go to UAB and see if the, if they can get the filter out number two you know patients get online and start to search because they've had doctors in their you know, in their hometown or wherever they're getting their care that says this filter can't come out. Uh, that's really been the second. And then the third has been, you know, other physicians here at UAB who have heard that we're starting to take more filters out that say, Hey, I've got this patient's had this filter in for, you know, four or five years. And, and, uh, would you consider taking them out? That's kind of really the, where the ones, even though it's a small number, that's kind of been the three groups of patients that we've seen. Okay.
1: What about you, Bob?
0: Yeah, it's interesting. You know, um, how did that happen? Um, you know, in Chicago, I, I think part of it had to do with the fact that we started taking out some filters that, you know, probably um, were beyond what people had originally been taking out, like what was possible. Um, and we were writing about it. You know, we were we were trying to be pretty um, rigorous with regard to publishing uh, some of our approaches to this. Um, we were on the Internet. Um And, uh, you know, it just seemed kind of like word of mouth uh, got around a lot. You know, obviously, Chicago's a pretty big referral area. And so, um, you know, cases came in from around the city. Next thing you know, they were coming from Indiana and and, uh, surrounding states around there. uh, And it got kind of a regional thing. You know, now you'd have to talk to Cush, who's just, you know, he's just knocking out of the park there. You'd be shocked at the cases that... He not just takes on, but he actually successfully completes. They're pretty amazing. I mean, I could show you my phone of the stuff that he texts me on a daily basis that are
1: pretty raising yeah. cases. Yeah, I'm actually not surprised, especially after that that recent paper he put out, which is incredible. Um, yeah. yeah,
0: it's pretty impressive. He's doing good work. Anyway, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with just kind of being in the community. I think social media is helpful as well, being on the Internet and, um, uh, you know, talking to your physicians again, it's amazing how you get one patient from one doctor and sort of like what H is saying, you know, you take a few minutes and you, um, teach them what you know about IVC filters and your approach to it and how this matters. And the next thing, you know, um, they've got friends and, uh, you know, they partners, I mean, and, and, you know, that that's how it starts.
1: So are you approaching these, both the doctors uh, and the patients on, you know, a a doctor by doctor basis or, you know, are you going out there and doing any dedicated education of um, these doctors, lunches, conferences, things like that?
2: Uh, ours has been, you know, we're starting to, to dip our toes a little bit. You know, uh, UAB has been great about providing us a lot of resources as far as, uh, marketing and public relations, and they actually do some CME podcasts and and things like that. So, um, you know, we're starting to dip our toes in those waters of kind of, you know, marketing app to groups and marketing app to decision groups. But a lot of it has been, uh, you know, a lot of this slow go of, you know, uh one neurosurgeon here, one vascular surgeon there, one primary care doctor here. But but I agree with Bob. I mean I think you know, when when someone sees that you're responsible and that you care and that you're knowledgeable and that you're not, you know, trying to be a cowboy, right? I mean, that you're trying to, to do what's right for their patient and you're being responsible in following these things up, there is word of mouth, especially in these really integrated hospital systems. And and I don't think that uh, – I think once you start to do those kinds of things, that it, it almost spreads – I mean, I don't want to use the word like wildfire, but it, it spreads around pretty quick that um you know doctor so and so is taking out filters and is taking out you know uh is doing these advanced techniques and and pretty soon you're gonna start seeing these patients you know show up and and um, uh, but you know it it, it takes um, it takes being responsible and being accountable okay. to patients into into referring doctors for sure
1: Okay. Uh now are, are your groups, you know, the, the interventional radiology department, are, are you guys the only groups that are, are taking out the filters in your hospital system or, you know, cardiology and vascular surgery trying to uh, take some out as well? We have
0: both kinds of partners um, and uh, all three of us provide that service. Um, I think the uh, more technically challenging cases end up with us yeah
2: i know our vascular surgeons definitely place uh definitely place filters um i'm imagining the straightforward retrievals that I, I i honestly haven't ever seen them do a straight a, a retrieval but i imagine that they would feel comfortable doing it um but uh complex retrievals i don't think that they've uh, attempted yet yeah it's been
1: it's been quite a surprise to me coming from an institution where i r dominated the filter landscape uh i was naively surprised to find where I am now that cardiology and vascular surgery were kind of running the show uh, regarding even the you know more complex retrievals. Uh, so that's something I've had to kind of um, work through on my own. Um, but I, I think at this point, uh, if it's okay with you guys, I'd like to go ahead and switch gears a little bit and uh, talk about how you manage your individual patients. Uh, starting with uh, clinic, you know, which patients are you seeing in clinic beforehand? Uh, you know, is it every patient or even the ones you know, that had a, pla- you know, a filter you placed a few weeks prior?
2: For us, our, so our protocol is um, what we do is anytime a filter gets placed, one of our physician assistants places, uh, we can create patient lists inside of our electronic medical record, which has been nice. And so um, all of our physician assistants and myself have access to this patient list. And so, anytime a filter gets placed, they get go onto our patient list, and then um, an email goes out to from our physician assistant to our nurse practitioner, um, or I'm sorry, our nurse coordinator in our clinic, who schedules that that patient for an appointment in uh, usually two to three months from the time that we place the filter. Okay. And so, at current, we are seeing all of our retrievals uh, seeing all of our retrievals in clinic beforehand. Um, I don't have many, I can't think of many that, you know, are two to three weeks out, you know, that we play. I mean, I suppose if the patient was still in the hospital and was post-operative and, and they said, take the, take the filter out. I don't think I would need to see them, uh, in clinic, but for the most part, even the prophylactic ones, you know, that go in, uh, patient gets discharged. We've seen them a couple months and we, we talk about whether or not, you know, it, it needs to come out. And I don't know for me, um, I feel like it's a good thing. I think it establishes our clinical presence for one and two. You know, it just avoids any. Um, I mean, you guys know how interventional interventional radiology department runs. I mean, sometimes people show up, and you know, there's missing information or those different kinds of things. And so, this really avoids that for our filter patients. They they get down. They've got a, a half hour, forty five minute consult with one of our one of our physicians, and that's where. The the anticoagulation gets sorted out. That's whether you know all of these other issues kind of get sorted out, and and I think it's been really good for our practice to have just to see them all in clinic.
1: Ryan, what about you, Bob? No,
0: we we don't routinely see the filters that we place. Um, you know, uh, standard case, uh, they're coming back in two to three months, um, unless there's a question or there's something unusual about it. Uh, we'll just go ahead and schedule them. All of our patients are followed through a separate database that's maintained on a shared server, and we all have access to it. We have a terrific group of mid-levels who manage um, our database and kind of keep track of people, and they sort out 99.9% of the issues before the patient ever gets back to the hospital. So when they come in, usually it's, you know, they've already talked to them, they figured it out, we've been in touch with the referring physician, et cetera. Right. So the only people we really see in clinic are um, somebody coming from outside, we don't know what kind of filter they have, or we know maybe it's been in for ten, twenty years or whatever. Hmm. Um, you know something of an unusual case, somebody who, who's had an attempt elsewhere um those folks will always see them before we uh before we try and take it out.
1: now will you get imaging
0: beforehand if needed, unless they've got you know recent imaging elsewhere or you know, they, somebody tried to take it out last week and bent the hook and they sent a picture of the bent. Well, <laughs> usually that's about all I need to see. Um, unless again, there's some issue of the patients demonstrating, you know, some evidence of venous obstruction, in which case we'll at least get ultrasound, if not CTV. Okay. lay things out.
1: Now you, you bring up the patients who have had filters in place for 10 to 20 years, um, do you have any hesitancy to remove longstanding filters in asymptomatic patients, or, or really any filters? Uh, fair game for the most part.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great question, and you know, is um, kind of uh, well, like all of medicine, it's a patient-specific decision. Um, you know, a, a fairly common scenario is somebody comes in who's had a filter in for you know ten years, and they've been on anticoagulation. Uh, And the only reason they're in anticoagulation is because they have a filter in place. And, uh, you know, given the low risk of the retrieval procedure itself and the hopeful outcome that they'll no longer require anticoagulation therapy and its attendant risks, you know, I, I don't think that's a real hard case to make in terms of at least making an attempt to retrieve the filter you know, we've all gotten pretty good at it. You know, the technology's improved. We've gotten, you know, we're getting a lot more practice um, with getting these really difficult, old, sort of crumbling filters out. Um, so the risk is low, and the potential upside is high. Uh, so I have very little hesitancy in offering those people uh, the opportunity to get off their anticoagulation. The other scenario is somebody comes in with a asymptomatic fractured filter, you know, and they're not on anticoagulation. What is your responsibility to that patient in the setting of a filter that is already fracturing? And if it should fracture in the wrong place, they're looking at a, you know, cardiac, a metallic cardiac embolus. Um, again, You know, you could make the argument, well, the patient's asymptomatic. And, you know, both these scenarios, by the way, I'll say, assuming these patients do not require mechanical prophylaxis. In other words, they don't need the filter anymore. Again, in both those scenarios, I think it's pretty easy, at least for me, to have a very upfront discussion with the patient about the upsides and downsides of what we're trying to do um, and why we're doing it and explain very clearly, you know, here... We could just leave this alone. We don't know what'll happen, but you know, maybe this, maybe not this, who knows? You gotta decide for yourself.
1: I'm with you. Uh AJ, how do you feel about this?
2: No, I mean, i I would agree with everything that Bob said, but I you know, also I think you have to realize that there's a lot of people, I would say a lot of interventional radiologists who, you know, feel less comfortable and may kind of say, Hey, well listen, if it's not causing you any problems, let's leave it because there are you know, maybe some some risks associated with filter retrieval. And I don't know that that's the wrong decision. Um, obviously, you know, that's not something that, that neither Bob or myself would probably agree with. But um, I definitely think that, you know, sitting down with the patient and explaining uh, what the thought process is, and then kind of say, here's the risks, here's the benefits, and, and we can go from there, I think is, is very important.
1: Now, let's, let's switch gears again and start talking about uh, the technical side of these. Uh, so, Hypothetically, if you're starting a filter retrieval from scratch at a new hospital, what's your must-have equipment before you start
2: scheduling patients? Uh, Starting with you, AJ? Well, it's kind of interesting. So um, we uh, obviously... For you know, for us, I always just—I mean, I always just start with with a uh, with a snare device. I mean, you have to have one of those, obviously. Um, and after that, uh, you know, I'll go to usually a reverse curb catheter and a glide wire, and creating a glide wire loop snare, um, either either that or forceps um, if it's a uh, tip embedded. So to me, if you're going to do like filter retrievals, I mean, at the bare minimum, you've got to have a loop. You've got to have a loop. snare. you've got to have the glide wire and, you know, uh, probably forceps. If you're going to do anything complex, um, we have, you know, we share a space here at UAB with, uh, uh, with our EP folks. And so we actually had a laser, um, uh, no, I mean I don't know if like a laser is an absolute requirement. I don't think so. I mean they're 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 expensive, and when we started here, I was not credentialed to to start using the laser, and that's something that you know that we've had to work on uh, to get credentialed to use the laser laser here at the hospital. But um, there's definitely one that that I failed getting out. It was a Gunther tulip that was 11 or 12 or 13 years old. Had it hooked and ready to go, and had I had that laser ready, you know, I would have been able to get it out for sure. Um, it just I was just was not able to overshoot it, and so I think. You know, having the tools ready up front is really advantageous, especially if you're going to get aggressive and start taking out older uh, and or permanent filters.
1: Okay. Yeah. You know, Penn, interestingly, we had the laser and didn't use it. Scott Chartola, um carries per, 100% success rate with the, uh, the forceps alone. And so that was going to be one of my questions with, you know, was whether or not you've had instances where you wouldn't have been able to get the filter out with, without a laser.
2: Well, yeah, that was the, that was the first one. And it's just, you know, I, I usually kind of tell everybody, like, yeah, if you pull hard enough, you'll get it. And I had it with forceps. I had it with a, I had it with a, a glide wire loop snare. I had it with a regular snare and I had it hooked and had it over sheath about 80%. And I just could not get that, just could not get that last little bit, you know, to go over the sheath. And maybe, you know, maybe he lifts more weights than I do or eats more weeds <laughs> than I do. But I just, you know, I like, I, you know, I pulled as hard as I was comfortable pulling at the time. Bob, what about you?
0: Uh, in terms of you know, must-have equipment, um, I think adult diapers are very helpful. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, think I
2: was going to let so me I talk can, over you just uh, for uh, one second. Big sheets—that that was the other thing I had to have—was big sheets that we didn't have when I first got here. I oh, was so confused in French. Yeah, uh, yeah uh, no question.
0: You know, it's. Um, Nobody ever says gosh I wish I had used a smaller sheath on this case. Yeah. Um, yep. And and so, you know, when in doubt, if you're even thinking you need a bigger sheath, you need the bigger sheath. Okay. <laughs> and you know, 16 is a good go-to sheath. Um 18 if you're feeling if you're feeling it. Uh and certainly, you know, there are occasions when you go bigger uh and you can use a dry seal or whatever, you know, one of the gore products. Um for me, I, I think the biggest, you know, the the quantum shift uh technically was definitely the forceps. Um you know loop snares is great. Again, the bigger sheath certainly makes things a lot easier. But now, you know, It takes about somewhere between one and two minutes of fluoro time to know whether or not you're going to get a filter just using a snare. Mm -hmm. And if I'm not getting the proper tactile feedback, I just go straight to forceps and take the filter out. Okay. takes takes 90%. I'm sorry, go ahead. And then um, we use the laser overall in about 10% of cases.
1: Okay. Do you always start out with the smaller sheath and go with the loop snare or the retrieval kit? Or do you occasionally start out with the 16 French or larger sheath?
0: Um, The only time I'll start with a 16 is if I know I'm in for a dog fight, like, you know, an an opties or, you know, something bad. Um, But standard, you know, patients coming back three months after we put the filter in. Now, I'll just use a standard, you know, 10 French, depending upon certain, depending on what device, you know, you're coming out with.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, if someone's come to you for the outside, I mean, I can think of one that was an Optiz that was failed outside retrieval and, uh, you know, we got IJ and femoral access and kind of went through and through and did some stuff with some, some larger sheaths, but you know, uh, we had another patient kind of self-refer. He had a I think it's tool up or select. I can't remember for, you know, seven years. And, uh, you know, we went in and had the laser ready. I had everything ready, right. There was a lot of hubbubaloo around this case just because I was like, okay, I want everything ready just in case. But, you know, just to decrease the anxiety in the room from the texting nurses, like we're just going to do what we normally do. Right. So my fellow goes in, he grabs it and we oversheep it in less than five minutes. Right. And we're just done. So I think that there's a lot of like value in just sometimes just starting with what you normally do, unless, you know, someone's already tried that on the outside or you have imaging to show that it's going to be a a very difficult retrieval.
1: Okay. Uh, is kind of a controversial topic are any of you using uh ephemeral bailout technique i think it's at um cyanide where they go in it's the filter reversion technique uh oh gosh based-
2: have you done have you done this
0: bob not on purpose <laughs> <laughs>
2: I haven't, you know, that they don't make, uh, you know, that da- UAB, they haven't, I haven't found adult diapers large enough yet to, uh, to, <laughs> to, to, you know, to, to accommodate that, you know, there's one where I, there was a guy who, boy, I, 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 I thought about it, but you know, uh, uh, you know, we did some other things that got to filter out, but not have not attempted one myself yet.
1: Okay. Um, just some more questions about you know, the technical side. Uh, do you guys do a rotational caveogram or just like a traditional AP caveogram before removing these? Uh,
2: yeah, we do. We do a venogram, uh, not with not with uh, not with cone beam CT or anything like that. But yeah, just a traditional caveogram, just to make sure that there's no clot in the filter or, or anything like that.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. I always start with a cavagram. We don't routinely use Dyna CT unless you know there's a reason that you need to see. Um, the 3D reconstruction, you know, I, I think um, an interesting topic was actually from your old program at Penn. They did a very nice study a few years ago looking at post-retrieval cave right. which, you know, I, I don't routinely do and haven't for many years, assuming the filter comes out easily. Uh, but I always do it whenever, you know, as soon as you cross over into the adjunctive techniques world um, then I automatically do. And just cause, you know, I was a little bit more paranoid about those cases in terms of cable integrity. And in fact, uh, it was nice to see their write-up, um, you know, large series that basically said, um, exactly that, that you really don't need to do a cavogram after routine retrievals and that you probably should after adjunctive cases. Nice paper
1: yeah uh so you brought up another uh important point is uh clot in the in the cava. How do you manage that And how do you approach it when you see clot uh, either within or below the filter
2: uh i mean assuming that it, you know speaking of that pen paper i mean i ch- I changed my practice after reading that paper. you know I always used to do a cava gram post and I just i read that paper and I was like, what am I doing like is this just not even worth it anymore um I don't know where I heard this or read this, but you know I just kind of use. 25% of the filter. If it's less than 25% full of clot, I'll still, uh, you know, I'll still pull it out. If it's all full of clot, you know, and if it's all full of clot, then it just really depends if it's symptomatic or not, right? I mean, if there's cable thrombosis and the patient's symptomatic, then obviously you're going to start to do, you know, catheter directed thrombolysis and thrombectomy, and the filter's going to come out and those other kinds of things. So, but unexpected, um, I just can't remember that many cases where there's been unexpected, asymptomatic, uh, significant amounts of clots in the IVC or it's in the filter itself.
0: Yeah, I um, um, I routinely, we use a similar number, 25, 30% of clot volume, you know, to determine whether or not you can take it out. That's probably conservative, to be honest with you. But, you know, it's a number that's published and the number that we stick with. And uh, if we see it, we keep patients on anticoagulation. We have them come back six weeks and we do
2: it again. You okay. uh, can certainly do a CTV and save the patient potentially
0: having a, another cavagram. But, you know, usually when they come back at six weeks, I mean, I, only have, I can only remember one patient who hadn't cleared at six weeks and actually needed a third procedure in order to get their filter out. I think the most important thing is that, you know, you don't give up. And okay. uh, sort of the, the thing that you see happen, um, you know, and people sort of attribute that to, well, we're going to call it permanent now because there's clot in it. Uh, I think that's a mistake, and I I think that patients really should be brought back for another attempt.
1: So I I thought maybe we'd just spend a a brief amount of time talking about uh, the filters you place. I don't know if you guys are like me. I think we're all using the Optis as our uh, go-to filter, right? Yes, 100%. Definitely. (laughs) Scott Cheritola called the Optis the thalidomide of filters. Uh, I was hoping you guys could both share what you guys are routinely using, uh, both in terms of... uh, you know retrievable or temporary versus um or when you're placing them uh permanent filters
2: so we're uh we've been mostly using the uh the bar denali uh filter um in fellowship, that's all we placed per, you know whether or not the filter was going to be permanent retrieval we were just you know placing denalis for everybody um and in, I think at UAB that's that's typically been a lot of the practices that everybody's getting to Denali filter. Um, I've been trying to work with the residents and the fellows just to kind of you know think about it a little bit more. And if you really want someone to have a permanent filter, you think it's going to be in there, then let's permanent uh, do a permanent filter. And the one that I've you know just been most comfortable with is that Venatech LP for yeah. doing a permanent filter.
0: Yes, I'm a big proponent actually of permanent filter use in the right patients. and, Okay. You know, uh, we've written a little bit about that in terms of trying to determine, you know, how patients are best served by that. Aaron Eifler, who's now a fellow at Northwestern, um, several years ago helped write an algorithm for um, developing a calculator to develop a likelihood of retrieval. And this is, you know, based on some prospective data we collected. So I- I'm a big believer that there's still a role for permanent filters. Um, and I think that, with the problems that we see with retrievable filters, um, you know, it's pretty easy to make that case again, to, to optimize the utilization of these devices in terms of retrievable filters. Um, you know, I'm kind of an agnostic. Uh, I, I don't have a particular brand. Um, we try to use all of them, you know, we're at a training center too. And so the more types of filters that are, trainees get an opportunity to deploy the better, I think. Sure. <laughs> um, but that said, you know, um, there are a couple of manufacturers that we do tend to avoid, uh, that we actually don't stock. Okay. Uh, and I'll leave it at
1: that. <laughs> we had just started using the, I see just started. Uh, we were using the Vinatech convertible at, uh, at Penn when I was there and, you know, we'd use the Vinatech LP, which I really liked, uh, have any of you ever actually converted one of these, these Venatech convertible filters? I have not.
2: I, I haven't either, actually. We were one of the sites uh, both in St. Louis here in Birmingham for the Century trial, but um, uh, for the Century filter, but I have not converted one of the Vinatech convertible ones.
0: Yeah, I have, but it's been a while. It's funny. Um, you know, it's such an interesting product. Right. It's an interesting device, it's, you know, but it's sort of looking for a home. Um, and trying to figure out where does it fit into the paradigm of, um, device choice. And, you know, I'm pretty convinced it's out there. It's just, you know, we can't even come to a, any sort of agreement right now, not just within the IR community, but extend this into all of our clinical colleagues, As to whether there's really a difference between permanent and retrieval filters, let alone, yeah, we're going to throw another one in there called Convertible, which is kind (laughs) of a hybrid device. So, you know, it's it's an interesting device. I think it's pretty slick. Um, It's just a matter of trying to
1: figure out where it fits in yeah it's really interesting i mean it it it's similar to a retrievable filter, and that for most of these if you're going to convert it, you're bringing them back and converting it uh was it pretty challenging to do or is it pretty straightforward
0: no I think it's it's very straightforward you know the the only thing I'll tell you is that so i I use end snare. like that's kind of my go to snare for retrievals. Uh-huh. Do not use end snare for con for the convert filter <laughs> use the regular um loops they implants gooseneck yeah gooseneck sorry thank you i i so hey, you're weird. welcome <laughs> um but that is what you need to convert do not you do not even try to use anything else uh chaos will ensue and uh and you know don't say i didn't warn you but it's easy to do it really is you just have to you know read the little device thing watch the videos. very simple
2: I just have you know, I always just have a little bit of a concern, you know, like when you're leaving something behind, you know. Um, either with the century filter or with this convertible filter, you pull it you know you pull the top off, but it still leaves the you know, the barbs or the tines behind. And just knowing that anything inside the veins could eventually cause this the thrombose or, you know, the inflammation that it causes, I I just don't know what that looks like, you know, going forward.
0: Yeah, well, you know, uh, I think everybody shares that concern. I think that it's, um, you know, what I think most people draw somewhat of a correlate to is the G. N. Turco stent and how those stents, you know, in terms of patency, it's simply not an issue. You know, they're so big. Uh, And the thing about it is that the, you know, I don't know if you've held a convertible in your hand, but you know, they're, they're much less robust in terms of the size of the metal. Um, you know, these struts are, are more delicate, but we also know that, you know, it seems that those devices are pretty robust. If, you know, they're comparable to a Venatech LP, you don't really see Venatech LPs, or at least I haven't, where they're fracturing and migrating, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, you know, the, again, there's a similarity to, to that design in that it's stable. So, while it does raise those issues, I agree with you 100%. It does alleviate other issues that I think, you know, again, it's a hyper device. It, it's not the cure all, but it definitely, I think, can serve a role for, you know, the selected patients. The question is who are those patients who are best served having that device?
1: Absolutely. Um, so, if it's okay with you guys, unless there's anything else you think we should cover, I, I thought I'd wrap up by covering a few questions that, that came up on Twitter. Um, there were several from Sabine Don, one of which, uh, asked, when do you decide to stop a difficult filter retrieval and how much is it okay to leave behind if anything?
2: Um, I think, you know, I, <laughs> I guess I have a ready answer for this because I already shared that a little bit, you know, uh, uh, you know, I stopped a difficult filter retrieval when um, I was pulling, and the patient was uncomfortable, and uh, I just didn't know how much more torque I wanted to put, you know, to put to put on the patient, and so we stopped. Um, as far as I don't, I wouldn't love leaving anything behind if I thought it was intravascular, and that's why I think you know maybe combing CT sometimes uh, is helpful because you know these uh, the, the struts they perforate they're outside, and so if you pull, you know, if you pull the filter out and the struts in the retroperitoneum, like that doesn't bother me, right? I do a combine CT and that's the strut that's out in the retroperitoneum. I'm, I'm not worried about that. But if it's something that's intravascular that I'm worried is going to go, I mean, just like what Bob was saying, you don't want to have you know, an in intracardiac, you know, metallic foreign body. There's it's just bad outcomes for patients with those. Things. Okay. So I'm not sure how much comfortable I would feel leaving something behind if it was uh, intravascular. Now, that being said, we were writing something up, and I was looking at the, at the MOD database about some migrated filters, and there's plenty of patients um, in the MOD database who had intracardiac migrated filters, and they were just treated with anticoagulation and just left alone. And I don't know what the outcomes of those patients were, but clearly, you know, um, it's a decision people are making at times.
0: Yeah. So I'm trying to picture what that conversation's like.
2: <laughs> I know, right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> hey, I, I've got some good news and some bad news for you. Uh, the good news is we took your filter out. The bad news is, is you got a piece of metal in your heart and you're just going to have to live with it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that, that's, that's pretty awful. Um, yeah, the, I, um, so when do you stop? It's a great question. So I used to do all these with conscious sedation. and Now I've gone to doing, um, a lot of the complex ones, certainly the, the cortis products. I'll do those with general anesthesia. Hey, Interesting. You, yeah. Do you, do you do that? Do you do them under GA, the complex ones? No,
2: I, I, I switched to, you know, um, I was, you know, so I went to the SIR session this year with, you know, Kush and uh, Lewandowski and Brian Hawley from Hopkins and uh, Bob Lewandowski mentioned that complex ones he does with Mac. And so, and, and that's what I noticed, you know, in my own practice, like anytime I opened up those forceps, the patient felt it. I mean, every time you opened up, so like, Oh, you know, and so it, it, I have switched over to using Mac when I think it's going to be a complex retrieval for sure.
0: Yeah. I, I've totally gone that direction. I mean, I think it's, um, I think it's just easier to work. Um, and I used to be very much a believer that if patients started to get symptomatic when you were pulling on their filter, that it was a warning sign, you're about to do something awful. Um, And I've kind of gotten away from that a little bit. Um, I was a very, very firm believer. Uh, You know, I was pretty dogmatic with the fellows about, you know, when a patient starts to yelp a little bit, you better be paying very close attention to what's going on and how hard you're pulling. Um, But now with these complex ones, you know, we just, were are so much more aggressive. Um, and I think we're all developing a little bit more of a comfort level with what the IVC can take and, quite frankly, how forgiving it is um, as a vascular structure. Uh, you know, we're all kind of recalibrating, I think, at least a little bit um, with what you can get away with in terms of taking these things out. I, as a personal policy, I, I just, I never leave stuff behind. Um, if I can get it, I'm going to get it. You know, it really has to be embedded uh, for me to give up. And I'll spend a lot of time trying to take out these little fragments piece by piece. Uh, you know, and that, that's the other bit of advice I'd give people is, you know, you've got to be patient with these things. They take a long time and, you know, that's another good reason to use your anesthesia colleagues to help you because, you know, you can be in there for three, four hours, um, taking these things out and picking away at the broken struts and, you know, chasing them down in various parts of the vascular anatomy. That's no fun.
1: Well, gentlemen, uh, in order to keep you two from being with us for three to four hours, uh, I think I'll go ahead and, and take this opportunity to close uh, today's episode unless you have anything else you'd like to add or um, to bring up.
0: Yeah, two things. One, I want to shamelessly plug the active meeting uh, October 5th to 7th at, um, in Phoenix, SIR sponsoring active, uh, which is um, uh, a meeting devoted to filters, actually, uh, filter retrieval, as well as PERT, acute and chronic DVT. Like um, the faculty is great, you know, and uh, Kush and Bob have done a great job of uh, putting that meeting together. Um, I'm really looking forward to the hands-on workshop for filter retrieval. Um, we've got all these models that Mike Adagaki put together for us. Um, so it should be a lot of fun and uh, some good cases, things like that. What kind of hands-on models will you have? Oh, you name it. Um, from stuff that... Uh, you know things that we've talked about. Obviously, all the standard techniques: forceps, lasers, loop snares, etc. Um, there are a couple of uh, device companies actually are coming that have devices that are about to hit the market. Um, the Captus device is going to be there. There's another one. I think I'm not sure they have approval yet, but we're hoping uh, we're
1: hoping they'll be there.
0: Um,
1: so there should be some pretty cool stuff.
2: Yeah, that sounds awesome. AJ, are you going? I'm not going, I'm not going, but now I'm like super sad that I'm not, I know. (laughs) (laughs) No, I was just going to say one thing. I mean, to, to, uh, you know, to the younger IRs that are out there, I think sometimes when you read the papers that are coming out from, you know, Northwestern and Colorado and Stanford, you think, oh, you know, they're doing all these crazy things. And I think uh it can be a little intimidating when you're very first starting your practice, but I, I don't think that anyone would expect you to take out these extremely complex filters on your first try, but there's plenty of support out there, uh either through, um, either through meeting people at meetings or reaching out through social media, or reaching out through the SIR directory. There's plenty of people out there that have done this for a long time that are willing to, you know, uh, give you, lend you their expertise, uh, their expertise and their knowledge and to support you as you, you know, go up go about trying to pick up more techniques to take out these filters for your patients. So it's out there if you look for it. Yeah. You know, I'll echo that AJ. I think that's really, really important.
0: Um, that was a, it was very tricky getting the laser up and running uh, when we started that in Chicago way back when. Um, you know, I think Will was the only person who was uh, using it at that time. And, you know, there's some subtleties to using it, um, not to mention sort of the infrastructure issues that come with it. And so, you know, I'd been lucky enough to get to work with some people around the country to get them up and running. And I'm always happy to help folks. Uh, and there are, you know, there are things that I can help sort of streamline for those of you who are interested in learning laser and kind of figuring out how it works and all this stuff. I'm always happy to talk. I'm sure AJ, you are, too. Um, but, you know, it, it doesn't have to be a meeting. It can be totally informal. It can be an email. And uh, um, we go from there with a conversation. And and the more of us who are doing this, uh, the better it's going to be. There are a ton of filters out there that need to come out. And, you know, we we are way behind the curve. Somebody tweeted that. Was that from Sinai, I think, yesterday? Um, uh, Referring to an article, I think, in Journal of American College of Cardiology. I can't remember. I should look on my phone. But, you know, they're commenting on how filter out and filter in is totally balanced, right? There are Mm -hmm. way more filters going in than filters coming out. And the more of us who get involved in this, the better uh, it will be for patient care.
1: Well, I think I will take you both up on uh, your offer for advice at some point in the near future. But, again, I just wanted to thank you both for coming and joining us on this podcast. This has been fantastic. Um, oh, this was great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this was really good. And, you know, we are hopeful that ultimately Backtable can be another one of those resources where you can learn from your colleagues and and get advice on how to manage things like this. Uh, thank you guys both. Uh for our listeners out there, uh, look for us at Twitter, uh, on Twitter at@, uh, at underscore bagtable. Let us know what you want to hear and, and how we can help. Thanks everyone.: All right, thank you.:
0: Thanks, Michael.